Book One, Chapter Two of the Bostonians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Isabel Bram. The Bostonians by Henry James, Chapter Two. Whether much or little consideration had been directed to the result. Miss Chancellor certainly would not have incurred this reproach. She was habited in a plain dark dress without any ornaments, and her smooth, colourless hair was confined as carefully as that of her sister was encouraged to stray. She had instantly seated herself, and while Mrs. Luna talked, she kept her eyes on the ground, glancing even less toward Basil Ransom than toward that woman of many words. The young man was therefore free to look at her, a contemplation which showed him that she was agitated and trying to conceal it. He wondered why she was agitated, not foreseeing that he was destined to discover later that her nature was like a skiff in a stormy sea. Even after her sister had passed out of the room, she sat there with her eyes turned away, as if there had been a spell upon her which forbade her to raise them. Miss Olive Chancellor, it may be confided to the reader, to whom, in the course of our history, I shall be under the necessity of imparting much occult information, was subject to fits of tragic shyness, during which she was unable to meet even her own eyes in the mirror. One of these fits had suddenly seized her now, without any obvious cause, though, indeed, Mrs. Luna had made it worse by becoming instantly so personal. There was nothing in the world so personal as Mrs. Luna. Her sister could have hated her for it, if she had not forbidden herself this emotion as directed to individuals. Basil Ransom was a young man of first-rate intelligence, but conscious of the narrow range, as yet, of his experience. He was on his guard against generalizations which might be hasty, but he had arrived at two or three that were of value to a gentleman lately admitted to the New York bar and looking out for clients. One of them was to the effect that the simplest division it is possible to make of the human race is into the people who take things hard and the people who take them easy. He perceived very quickly that Miss Chancellor belonged to the former class. This was written so intensely in her delicate face that he felt an unformulated pity for her before they had exchanged twenty words. He himself, by nature, took things easy. If he had put on the screw of late, it was after reflection, and because circumstances pressed him close. But this pale girl, with her light green eyes, her pointed features and nervous manner, was visibly morbid. It was as plain as day that she was morbid. Poor Ransom announced this fact to himself as if he had made a great discovery. But in reality, he had never been so Boeotian as at that moment. It proved nothing of any importance with regard to Miss Chancellor to say that she was morbid. Any sufficient account of her would lie very much to the rear of that. Why was she morbid? And why was her morbidness typical? Ransom might have exulted if he had gone back far enough to explain that mystery. The women he had hitherto known had been mainly of his own soft clime, and it was not often they exhibited the tendency he detected, 
and cursorily deplored in Mrs. Luna's sister. That was the way he liked them, not to think too much, not to feel any responsibility for the government of the world, such as he was sure Miss Chancellor felt. If they would only be private and passive, and have no feeling but for that, and leave publicity to the sex of Taffer Hyde, Ransom was pleased with the vision of that remedy. It must be repeated that he was very provincial. These considerations were not present to him as definitely as I have written them here. They were summed up in the vague compassion which his cousin's figure excited in his mind, and which was yet accompanied with a sensible reluctance to know her better, obvious as it was that with such a face as that she must be remarkable. He was sorry for her, but he saw in a flash that no one could help her. That was what made her tragic. He had not, seeking his fortune, come away from the blighted south, which weighed upon his heart, to look out for tragedies. At least he didn't want them outside of his office in Pine Street. He broke the silence ensuing upon Mrs. Luna's departure by one of the culturous speeches, to which blighted regions may still encourage a tendency, and presently found himself talking comfortably enough with his hostess. Though he had said to himself that no one could help her, the effect of his tone was to dispel her shyness. It was her great advantage, for the career she had proposed to herself, that in certain conditions she was liable suddenly to become bald. She was reassured at finding that her visitor was peculiar. The way he spoke told her that it was no wonder he had fought on the southern side. She had never yet encountered a personage so exotic, and she always felt more at her ease in the presence of anything strange. It was the usual things of life that filled her with silent rage, which was natural enough inasmuch as, to her vision, almost everything that was usual was iniquitous. She had no difficulty in asking him now whether he would not stay to dinner. She hoped Adeline had given him her message. It had been when she was upstairs with Adeline, as his card was brought up, a sudden and very abnormal inspiration to offer him this, for her, really ultimate favour. Nothing could be further from her common habits than to entertain alone, at any repast, a gentleman she had never seen. It was the same sort of impulse that had moved her to write to Basil Ransom in the spring, after hearing accidentally that he had come to the north and intended, in New York, to practice his profession. It was her nature to look out for duties, to appeal her conscience for tasks. This attentive organ, earnestly consulted, had represented to her that he was an offshoot of the old slave-holding oligarchy, which, within her own vivid remembrance, had plunged the country into blood and tears, and that, as associated with such abominations, he would not a worthy object of patronage for a person whose two brothers, her only ones, had given up life for the northern cause. It reminded her, however, on the other hand, that he too had been much bereaved, and moreover that he had fought and offered his own life, even if it had not been taken. She could not defend herself against a rich admiration, a kind of tenderness of envy, of any one who had been so happy as to have that opportunity. The most secret, the most sacred hope of her nature was that she might some day have such a chance 
that she might be a martyr and die for something. Basil Ransom had lived, but she knew he had lived to see bitter hours. His family was ruined. They had lost their slaves, their property, their friends and relations, their home, had tasted of all the cruelty of defeat. He had tried for a while to carry on the plantation himself, but he had a millstone of debts round his neck, and he longed for some work which would transport him to the haunts of men. The state of Mississippi seemed to him the state of despair. So he surrendered the remnants of his patrimony to his mother and sisters, and, at nearly thirty years of age, alighted for the first time in New York, in the costume of his province, with fifty dollars in his pocket and a gnawing hunger in his heart. Though this incident had revealed to the young man his ignorance of many things, only, however, to make him say to himself, after the first angry blush, that here he would end the game, and here he would win it, so much Olive Chancellor could not know. What was sufficient for her was that he had rallied, as the French say, had accepted the accomplished fact, had admitted that North and South were a single, indivisible, political organism. Their cousinship, that of Chancellors and Ransoms, was not very close. It was the kind of thing that one might take up or leave alone, as one pleased. It was in the female line, as Basil Ransom had written, in answering her letter with a good deal of form and flourish. He spoke as if they had been royal houses. Her mother had wished to take it up. It was only the fear of seeming patronising to people in misfortune that had prevented her from writing to Mississippi. If it had been possible to send Mrs. Ransom money, or even clothes, she would have liked that, but she had no means of ascertaining how such an offering would be taken. By the time Basil came to the north, making advances as it were, Mrs. Chancellor had passed away. So it was for Olive, left alone in the little house in Charles Street, Adeline being in Europe, to decide. She knew what her mother would have done, and that helped her decision for her mother always chose the positive course. Olive had a fear of everything, but her greatest fear was of being afraid. She wished immensely to be generous, and how could one be generous unless one ran a risk? She had erected it into a sort of rule of conduct that whenever she saw a risk, she was to take it, and she had frequent humiliations at finding herself safe after all. She was perfectly safe after writing to Basil Ransom, and indeed it was difficult to see what he could have done to her except thank her. He was only exceptionally superlative for her letter, and assure her that he would come and see her the first time his business, he was beginning to get a little, should take him to Boston. He had now come, in redemption of his grateful vow, and even this did not make Miss Chancellor feel that she had courted danger. She saw, when once she had looked at him, that he would not put those worldly interpretations on things which, with her, it was both an impulse and a principle to defy. He was too simple, too Mississippian, for that. She was almost disappointed. She certainly had not hoped that she might have struck him as making unwomanly overtures. Miss Chancellor hated this epithet almost as much as she hated its opposite. But she had a presentiment that he would be too good-natured, primitive to that degree. Of all things in the world, contention was most sweet to her. 
The why it is hard to imagine, for it always cost her tears, headaches, a day or two in bed, acute emotion. And it was very possible Basil Ransom would not care to contend. Nothing could be more displeasing than this indifference when people didn't agree with you. That he should agree, she did not in the least expect of him. How could it Mississippian agree? If she had supposed he would agree, she would not have written to him. End of book one, chapter two.